Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? The nature of stalking, which is waiting, that's what being a victim of stalking is, waiting all the time. When's it going to happen? Where's it going to come from? What's it going to be? It's hard to shake that off. Many of us would have made a joke about stalking one time or another in our lives, using the word casually in situations like people following us around, finding out all you can about someone online before you meet them, or even those overly enthusiastic people that step over the too much boundary, we might say, wow, they are a bit of a stalker. But for my guest today, being stalked was no joke. Journalist Nicole Madigan is a victim survivor and believes stalking needs to be spoken of with far more seriousness. Her latest book, Obsession, a journalist and victim survivor's investigation into stalking, details how she was stalked for three years by her partner's ex-girlfriend. This was a woman she didn't even know, a woman she'd spoken to in passing only once at her son's cricket match. It's an extraordinary story and actually kind of hard to believe, to be honest. Now, Nicole was previously a television reporter with the Nine Network and has spent the past 15 years writing investigative articles, news pieces, long-form features and content for a wide range of publications and businesses. She is currently a senior writer for Mamma Mia and has a passionate interest in domestic violence and family law, writing frequently on these and related topics in the hope of raising awareness and evoking change. This is a story almost too bizarre to believe, and therein lies the problem. Let's meet Nicole to find out more. Nicole, it is so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? It would be stalking and the serious impact that it has on so many people that most people just don't realise. Yeah, wow. What a topic. I've never quite had a discussion around this before. And it's interesting because we use the term so frivolously, I guess, don't we? You know, it's like I've been stalking you, like to find out about you before your podcast, but obviously you've got a lot more of a serious side to talk about with this. So why is it an area and a topic you're passionate about? Well, that's it. I think you're exactly right. We do talk about stalking in a joking way. It's become part of the vernacular, really, these days, especially with social media and and the internet and things like that. At the same time, that same social media and internet has allowed actual real-life stalking to exacerbate massively and people just don't quite realise how serious it is. I'm talking about it now because it happened to me and over the years that it happened to me, I was deeply affected by it and it just gave me a totally new perspective about how how much it can impact people. Yeah. So you wrote a book um, about your experience called Obsession, Power, Fixation, Control. It's a journalist and victim survivor's investigation into stalking. So you are a journalist and you've went through this horrendous experience. Tell us more about it because like the fact that you're here to be able to tell this story, how long ago did it happen, Nicole, that the stalking first commenced? 
The stalking started almost five years ago exactly. I remember that because it started on grand final night, which is about five years ago now. So I'd been a few months into a new relationship, a later in life relationship. We both had kids and it was a, a second chance type relationship. And we'd had a bit of a party that night and had our families over and our children. And it was one of those really nice moments in time where you're just starting a new chapter. And that night I received a message request on Facebook from uh, what looked like a troll account or a fake account that was very, very abusive, really vulgar, filled with foul language by someone who was obviously wanting me to know that she had been in a relationship with Adam who I had just began dating. That was the start and from there it became a three-year experience of stalking from multiple different mediums predominantly online. Take me back to that moment then. So five years ago, you're sitting there and you're early on in the piece and it looked like a fake account or trolling because, you know, we get those often now in terms of, you know, fake accounts trying to contact or your bloody phone ringing all the time, which drives you nuts for people who don't know you. She used all this terminology and talked about your partner. I mean, how did you feel? Even you talking about that makes my skin crawl and makes my heart go fast. So in that first instance, It was just a feeling of sort of shock horror. I didn't know who it was from, but I could see that obviously, yes, it was someone who who knew Adam in some way and, and also knew who I was. When I showed him the message, it didn't take him long to sort of suggest who he thought it might be. And I guess at that point, obviously, stalking was not something that entered my mind. It was more a case of just pure shock or it was really emotional. I described it in the book like my bubble bursting. I was in a really happy place and then suddenly I was confronted with this kind of really gross, aggressive, cruel flurry of messages and they did come in a flurry, you know, throughout the rest of that night. So the icing on the cake was that I got a text message later that night from my ex-husband just simply said, Carissa says hi. Now, Carissa is not her real name. That's the name I've used in the book. But it did tell me that what she had sent in her messages about having contacted my ex-husband was true and I didn't know the context around that. So it it changed that feeling from really emotional and confronting to a little bit scary. What did Adam do at this time? Because, like, you're in a new relationship, this is just starting, and then obviously it wasn't a recent relationship of his if he had to think about who it was. So this person, was it a long time ago that he'd had a relationship with them? And obviously they're kind of still hung up on him, clearly. How did he sort of talk to you about that? Because it would have been weird. It was quite weird. And look, we had some previous discussion about this person. So I, d- I described this in the book, but about a year before that, the only exposure I'd had to this person without knowing who it was at the time was about a year before. And I was at a, a football catch-up for my son and there were a lot of parents there. And I didn't know it was the same person at that time, but this woman was there on the day. And when I was taking some photos of the kids, she came up to me and said, are you taking photos of Adam? And at the time I thought, how strange, you know, I knew Adam was one of the coaches and one of the dads, but I I didn't know him very well at all. And I obviously wasn't taking photos of him. I was taking photos of the kids. I was with the other mums. And I sort of said to her, oh, I'm just taking photos of my son. But then she kept walking. So I thought, oh, you know, she mustn't have been talking to me or, or was she? Who knows? And later that night, I got a message from her saying, oh, hi, you know, I didn't mean anything by that comment. I just wanted to get some cool photos for the footy page. And I just thought, oh, she must be one of the footy mums. She must know Adam. Forgot about it. 
fast forward 12 months and I got this strange message and I've shown Adam and he's mentioned her name. And that night, I guess it was spent more talking about who she was and whether or not this would come as a shock to him, this kind of crass and vulgar message. And I guess at that point, it was a bit of yes and no. Yes, in the fact that there were some reasons that that relationship hadn't worked out. And some of those reasons were sort of this kind of toxic behaviour. But to have actually reached out to me all this time later in such a confronting way, that had come as a bit of a shock. But of course, that was only the beginning and what unfolded, neither of us would have ever expected. So it went on then for three years. So talk me through that experience because my take is a lot of people kind of seem embarrassed about it and they have a bit of shame around this kind of topic. So they don't really tell anyone is sort of, you know, in terms of people I've spoken to. What was your experience through this? So that was exactly my experience. And it's interesting because It's one of those things that you don't tell anybody because you hope it will go away and it's just, it is embarrassing and that sounds like a really simple word to use but it's just the best way to describe it. You don't want to be saying to people, oh, my new partner's ex is sending me all these messages. Would you like to have a look at them because you don't want anyone to see them? As simple as that. And look, I honestly thought that by ignoring this, she would just get bored with it. I I hadn't had any experience with this kind of thing but it just stood to reason to me that it's somebody who is a bit bitter and twisted and they'll just get over it eventually. Very early on in the piece, I did sort of tell a couple of people, but I really found that their reactions were, they weren't negative per se, but they didn't really take it as some as a serious thing. And I just felt a little bit silly because I was really struggling with it. I thought I could handle it, but it was playing with my mind and it was weighing on me. So those responses, I guess, prevented me from talking about it further. And and the more it went on and the more kind of disgusting and vulgar the whole thing became, Adam and I decided, look, let's just stop talking to people about it. It's going to stop eventually and everyone will forget about it. Of course, the trap there is when it doesn't stop and it begins to escalate, you're in this really isolated trap where you're dealing with this long-term problem that absolutely nobody knows about. And it's very, very hard to condense three years into a quick explanation to somebody. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like I think about circumstances in my life where I've had overzealous boyfriends, you know, and you break up with them and they don't take no for an answer. And I remember one, I must have been about 17 or 18, and I woke up in the middle of the night and this guy was in my bedroom standing over me going, I can't live without you. I'm like, like, whoa, what the hell are you doing in my room? And it had been over for months and I thought, you know, I'd moved on and he clearly hadn't. But I never felt unsafe by him. It freaked me out a bit, but I knew he would never hurt me. How do you navigate that, identify, I guess, stalking behaviour versus someone that really likes you a lot? You know, my perspective has changed a lot since I've researched this crime and looked into it more heavily. When I was going through this, no, it wasn't an opposite sex situation, but I did think, oh, this is just annoying and emotionally traumatic, but I'm not in physical risk. Over time, that feeling changed, obviously, though, and ignoring that did not make it go away. It, It, in fact, made it worse. In terms of exes or new partners, I think really that notion that you're talking about forms part of the problem in terms of people justifying it and getting away with it and waiting a little bit too long before they do anything about it because of course most people don't do anything at the beginning because they are one-offs 
but a one-off and a one-off and a one-off and a one-off is suddenly a huge long pattern of, of events and you really don't know where that's going to go for one thing there is a risk in letting it go because if someone doesn't let go of that fixation sometimes they do escalate things as you go if you had your time again through this knowing what you know now what would you have done differently i would have made some official reports earlier i think to the police and to other people around me because once we were in that those final stages, things escalated quite heavily. They became more personal. She was finding out information about us. She was posting that information. And I was starting to feel I was in a little bit of a trap. Over time, when someone is harassing you in this manner, you develop a bit of a, a language that only the two of you understand. And that gives people the ability to stalk you or harass you or inflict fear without other people really knowing about it and it makes it more difficult to prove. So, for example, the person might start off having an attack on my appearance and giving me a nickname to match that attack. Over time, there's no explanation required. I am the nickname. So all she has to say is hashtag this nickname. So there's ways of getting a message across without being specific, which makes it really difficult to prove if you've waited that long. The longer you leave it, the bigger trap you're in. So I sort of felt if she starts to come public or have a more outward assault on me, it's going to come as a total shock to the people around me and how am I going to navigate this? Yeah, you know, like, or you're the psycho or the one that's carrying on about nothing. or So, so I would have done it a lot earlier I was very fortunate that I kept documentation of every single thing that happened and that was very helpful to me but the research shows a lot of people don't do that. You know, in that period of time that they're ignoring it, they're also deleting things and getting rid of things and pretending it's not happening and that's a big mistake. And when does it cross then from, you know, the initial kind of stalking you talk about, like it's a crime? So is there a level of which the police determined that it has crossed the line as such? Is there a line? Yeah, so it's interesting. The law itself is not a bad one. You know, it, it is illegal to stalk someone and stalking someone is defined for the most part as a pattern of behaviour that inflicts fear. So it's quite a simple definition and it is illegal. The problem is recognising that you're being stalked and documenting it in such a way that you can present that to the police and then having police recognise what you're bringing to them. For example, the experts tell me that a lot of people would come into the police and say, oh, I'm worried because this person has come to my house and they've left flowers on my doorstep. Okay, well, you know, keep a note of what's happening, call Triple O if it gets dangerous. You know, in and of itself, it's not that big a deal. But over time, that's what causes the problem. So the problem is awareness and attitudes recognising what's going on and then being able to prove it and, and having the police put in the time to help you do that. Yeah, you talk a bit about that around police misidentifying domestic violence victim survivors. Can you talk to me more about that? So stalking and coercive control have a lot of parallels because they are both crimes. Well, coercive control is, is a new crime. And define coercive control for anyone who's not sure what that is. So coercive control is a form of domestic violence that is not physical. So it's the use of emotional abuse, manipulation, threats, a whole range of controlling behaviours. Could be financial abuse, holding back money, any kind of behaviour that 
seeks to control the other person. And it's an insidious, chip away type of behaviour. So as with stalking, if you isolate those individual occurrences, they might be somebody being nasty or acting inappropriately, all negative things, but but not illegal things. It's Even within a domestic violence realm, you are allowed to say nasty things to your partner and you are allowed to mess up, you know, but it's that pattern of behaviour that, that is the problem. But it's very hard to recognise when you're in it and it's really hard to prove as well. So, so those things are very similar and it's difficult for police in their defence to lay those charges because they have to be able to justify the charge that they're laying. Yeah, goodness. It's um, such a complex area. And I think, you know, what about like if there's stalking, I guess, within your relationship? Is that a category, you know, like that you're talking about coercive control? I guess maybe that's a form of that where, you know, with technology, you can track people on their phones, you can, you know, get access to lots of different things. You know, they say to you, oh, I saw you were here today or you did this or, you know, they know where you are, what you're doing, all that. So is that classed as like a stalking within or I guess it's a form of coercive control? It is. You know, it's both because the nature of those behaviours is stalking. So if you're tracking someone or you're following them or you're watching their every move or you're listening in, that is stalking. It then moves into coercive control if, you know, for example, if a partner is insisting that they do those things, that they, they might be telling their partner, I will follow you and I am going to put this tracking and they're, they're controlling them that way. Or they could be doing it secretly. Either way, they are stalking their partner. Goodness, it makes my skin crawl, but some people have gone through this stuff like yourself. So if you think about where you're at now and Carissa, she had a two-year conviction, so you went, took the police, and then what happened? You had to go to court and get her actually convicted? Is that what the process was? In my case, I went to police three times. The first two times I didn't get anywhere with, with the police. The first time I was recommended to write a letter, a formal letter to warn her to back off or that we would take action. We were advised not to make a formal report in case it made things worse. Was that the right advice in your mind or the wrong advice? Again, now doing all the research and stuff you've done. I think it was the wrong advice. I can see why, though, they say that. I mean, we only have to listen to the news to see that, yes, some people do react quite strongly to getting their DVOs or things like that, and they have triggered violent responses. But at the same time, the alternative is to do nothing. And I think looking back now and what I know now is with these type of fixated and obsessed people, you don't really have control on what they do. And and your behaviours or your courses of action that you think every move you're making is, am I provoking them, am I not? I really think they're going to do what they're going to do, regardless of how you handle yourself. So no, I, I think that probably was the wrong advice in hindsight. I think it's an easy way to get victims to have to handle things on their own. That being said, we did write that letter and we did have a four or five month reprieve and we did think it had worked, but it started back up again and escalated really quickly. The second time I called police, I got that stock standard response, which was, there's not much we can do. Keep a note of anything. Call triple O if you're in danger. Did you go, yes, I've got pages and pages that I will end up writing a book about. That's how many notes I've got. <laughs> well, exactly. That's what I felt. I felt I did have the evidence, but I probably didn't push hard enough either because that initial response, 
it just made me withdraw. You know, I'm not used to this kind of thing. I'm talking about it now. But at the time, I wasn't telling anyone and I was very intimidated by the entire thing. So as, as soon as I detected that he wasn't that interested, I just said, okay, and said to Adam, there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to ignore it and just let it tick over in the background. The third time, things were escalating heavily and our private information was being posted. And as a mother, I thought, I have to try again. I can't just sit here and do nothing. So I took a different approach. I made a cybercrime report a very, very, very long one uh, because you can type it all out and I took that opportunity to type as much as I possibly could out and it was then referred to my local police station and I had a female officer and she was just incredible. She listened to me and she gave me step-by-step advice on how to prove what I was saying and that's where I was very fortunate because the process is immense and it's very difficult And if someone just says to you, oh, go and get some evidence and come back to me, you just wouldn't know what to do. But I was very lucky in that regard. In the end, there was enough evidence for this police officer to choose to charge Carissa with unlawful stalking. And so therefore it became a police matter. So I did not have to attend court, but I chose to. And how did you feel looking her in the eye? I was absolutely terrified. Because you hadn't seen her at any point through this three years? You hadn't ever sighted her again? Never again since that first day at the football catch-up. And so I, and I'd barely seen her that day. It was just like a walk past. Obviously, I'd seen her in some of her posts because, you know, I was aware of her posting because she was posting about me so much. But that was the first time. So it was, it was a really strange feeling to be laying my eyes on someone who was essentially a stranger but had been invading my life so perversely and so closely for so long. It was very, very strange. Did she look at you? Did she look like there was any remorse or is she just unhinged? And Well, they certainly didn't look like there was any remorse. So I had to sit there all day. Hers was the last case of the day and I just waited all day. Like each time the door opened, is she going to come in? You know, is she going to come in? And it was four o'clock, the door opened and I saw her walk in. We had masks on because it was COVID. And she was only like a split second, but it felt like longer. And she literally just stopped in front of me and made eye contact with me. And I thought she might say something, but she didn't. Then she just turned around, kept walking, sat over with her lawyer and never looked back again. That gumption though as well, right? To look you like that. Fascinating. So obviously nothing's happened in the two years because she's not able to. So if she does do something, what happens to her? Does she get a fine? Does she go to jail? Like how serious do they treat it? It's interesting because there's a there's a very large scope of what could happen depending on the severity of the crime. You know, I sat through five or six other cases before hers. They were all domestic violence cases, but they were quite violent cases and they were breaches. And None of these people got jail. They all got two-year probation orders, every single one. And my mum was with me and I said to my mum when there was a break, we are going to get laughed out of here. I just want to leave. You know, if these people are getting two-year probation orders, uh, this is just going to be another source of humiliation and I, I just want to leave. But the magistrate was really quite firm on her and when the lawyer started to plead the case, she started saying things that were absolute untruths and quite different to the agreed upon facts you know but when a charge is laid both parties have to agree upon the facts and the magistrate was quite quick to interrupt and 
she also gave me an opportunity to speak, which terrified me, but I did it anyway. And she gave her this two-year probation order and gave me a two-year restraining order. So if she breached the restraining order, she would then, as a result of that, breach the probation order, which would see her come back to court and have a conviction recorded and whatever else might happen. So we're coming, what is it, three months or something away from that date. How do you feel about that? I feel more anxious than I thought I would, to be honest, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is there are ways for people to let you know they're around or they're watching without directly breaching any orders and things like that. And and I will say there were periods of time where that happened directly after the guilty plea. So that sort of didn't, didn't sit quite right with me, but then everything did turn off and things like that. But look, it was something that was part of my life for so long. I think no matter how much time goes by, it's just so hard to completely switch off from it. Logically, I probably think it is all over and done with. I certainly hope so. I would think that any grown woman with a family, a conviction of stalking would be enough to, you know, make you turn your attention elsewhere. And I hope that is the case. But I think anyone who's been a victim of stalking would tell you that the nature of stalking, which is waiting, that's what being a victim of stalking is waiting all the time. When's it going to happen? Where's it going to come from? What's it going to be? It's hard to shake that off. Mm. Do you know why she came after you and not him? I don't know if we, we missed that, but you ended up marrying Adam, right? So he is your now husband. I imagine that would maybe made her even angrier. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm curious about his part in this. I was thinking about you at the early days, you know, this is your first sort of date or whatever, and this stuff happens. You're like going, ooh, have I gone to the wrong guy? <laughs> but obviously you've gone through it and you've worked through this together. Yeah, and look, not only was it our early stages of us, it was the first relationship I'd had after being married for 12 years. So, you know, I'm just entering <laughs> the adult dating landscape and this is what I'm finding. So, you know, at, at first I was a bit like I made a bit of a joke to someone saying like, oh, <laughs> is this just what happens, you know? Is this how adults uh, deal with their breakups and things like that? But look, it does make you pause and go, how, how far am I prepared to fight? I mean, we were some way in and our kids had got involved with each other and we were kind of locked in and we were very transparent about everything that was happening and and a source of support to each other and there was a little part of me I guess as well that was just so angry at this person that I just felt I just will not let her dictate anything that I do I just I was just very focused on that and I tried to do that even with the way I used social media and things like that for a long time eventually I, I had to change the way I used it I had no choice because you need to look after your safety and you know I've got children and You have to make some decisions that you don't want to make. But I resented the fact that, you know, any of my movements or my decisions would be impacted by this person who is just inflicting themselves on me and my life. Could you have just gone off social media? Would that have solved it? And I guess, you know, changed your phone number and stuff? I could have got off social media. Yes, I could have. Would that have solved it? I don't know. Knowing what I know now, I think probably not. I don't think me going off social media would make her go, ah, you know, problem solved now I can move on I also don't think that a victim of this type of behavior should have to do that in the modern day so my my view on that is social media and the internet is 
not just a little side part of life. It is part of life. My particular life and my job centres around social media. I use it to get work and to promote my work and that is how I make a living. And I think really, to be honest, I, I think telling someone these days to just get off social media is is like if this was happening 20 years ago, we would not say to someone, just don't check your letterbox. If you stop checking your letterbox, you won't get those horrible letters. Or if you stop going to work, you won't have your, this creep turning up at your workplace. So just quit your job, move house. And people have done that. People have had to do that. People that I've spoken to have changed jobs. They've changed car registrations they've moved but they shouldn't have to no and did you try the tactic where adam just called her out and spoke about it and said like basically what are you doing get out of our life only when the police advised us to write that letter so up until then he had wanted to do that obviously that was his natural reaction but at that time i thought no you know she's just trying to get your attention let's not give her any like if you start doing that It's just going to make it worse. That's just how I looked at it. Because people do tell you, you know, block and ignore. So that's what I did. You know, we blocked our accounts and ignored it. But of course, it just got worse. When we wrote the letter, Adam wrote that letter. And he did have a lovely formal part to warn her not to. But then he, he put his own spin on the end of it. So yes, he did have his chance to basically tell her to leave us alone. And then we did have that break. And after that, Adam never heard from her again. So in those early stages, she was messaging us both. But after that, it was only me. And the fixation just fell on me and all that rage and anger. And to answer your question before as to why, that I don't know. And that I was fascinated by. And that's kind of what prompted me to start the research because I just could not get my head around what this person's end goal was. You know, especially after I got engaged and married, I'm like, the goal can't be to, to break us up. That's obviously not the goal. It's to cause me stress and impact my life heavily, which she was doing. But until when? Until what happens? What has to happen to me to make her feel fulfilled? And that was the scary part. So you wrote the book. Do you ever wonder if she's read it? Yes, I do wonder. Based on what I've seen, you know, and, and learnt about this type of person, I don't suspect that reading this book would provoke any kind of remorse or even embarrassment. I think that people who engage in this type of behaviour seem to be quite okay with it and not quite even recognise that it is stalking even in and of themselves. It seems to be something that just takes over their life that's very difficult to explain. And if she was listening now, what would you want to say to her? I don't know if I could say it on a podcast... And and I and I hate to admit that, but one of the, the feelings that I've had to grapple with that I've never quite had to grapple with before is very, very intense levels of anger and rage that someone has done this to me because I've been so distressed at times and it's ruined so many good moments of my life and caused so much fear and taken up so much space. But did you find then, as a journalist, I guess, did you find the book really cathartic through that process to write this and write your story and, you know, to say, research it and find out, you know, that it is a problem in our country and then also to release that to the world? There must have been an empowering moment through that. Yeah, it was incredibly empowering because I'd been so silent for so long and due to fear, you know, that's why I was silent. I was scared and that fear kept me silent. 
And the irony was I was writing and reporting on domestic violence so often, which is a little bit different, but some of the notions are the same. You know, people fall silent. They they empower their perpetrators by saying nothing and doing nothing and everybody thinks that person is great. And that's why they're so bold. I mean, the person doing this to me did it all in her own name and all in public with absolutely no fear of being seen or caught or clearly of me doing anything in response. And she was right because I, I didn't. Well, Nicole, I think, you know, the the best way to get back is for your book to be a bestseller and make you a squillion dollars and you can go stuff you, baby. <laughs> like- yeah. <laughs> well, well, that that is a little positive byproduct. I've been so pleased to see how seriously the media has taken this. You know, it's it's a little bit fraught, especially when it's female on female and, you know, people can find that quite salacious and, and not take it very seriously, but I, I think people have. And look, I've had a lot, so many people contact me to say, I've gone through this or this has happened to me and I haven't told anyone. I haven't told the police. I haven't told any of my friends. It's too embarrassing, It's but, it, but it's consuming me. And they know that it's okay to feel that way now. And I think, you know, that was the, that was my goal. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And the people you can help in this space is just, that's a fantastic byproduct of a terrible experience you've been through. So I wish you all the very best in the future and uh, have many long, happy, stalk-free years ahead of you. But thanks so much for being so honest and open and uh, taking my challenging questions. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. It's just, it's, it's such a complicated issue as you say it's hard to know where to start but I appreciate you giving me the time well there you have it wasn't that an incredible conversation I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you if you did like it can I ask a small favor please rate and review on your listening platform for me I know everyone asks this but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.